Hello, everybody. Today's episode is with Jake Bruckman from CoinFund, and we talk about, you know, Jake's pushback on the FAT protocol thesis and how there are other ways to kind of diversify um, your crypto assets and to add different diversification dimensions to what you're doing and not just say, ooh, all these awesome applications are being built on top of Ethereum, therefore I should buy Ethereum. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, so we talk about that, and then we also talk about governance and how um, Jake is currently thinking about governance, and specifically he argues for more crypto entrepreneurs to be thinking about the research that's been done in this space. Um, and one that we talk about that's really interesting around voting choice theory is this thing called Arrow's Impossibility Theorem, which states, hey, if you believe these two things, um, the first one's just like, hey, if everybody prefers X over Y, then the group as a whole should prefer X over Y. So if everybody wants Coke over Pepsi, then the group should prefer Coke over Pepsi. You should vote for that. Um, if you want that, and if you want this other one that says, hey, if everybody, if the preference orders between X and Y remain unchanged, so let's say you have an ordered list of Coke and Pepsi and Sprite, whatever, if everybody, even if you're moving around the Sprite and the Mr. Pib and whatever, those different kinds of um, sodas, but your order between Coke and Pepsi remains unchanged, if everybody still has Coke above Pepsi, then you should, then the group's ordering should remain unchanged. Um, and so even if you have those two simple things, those two simple um, requests essentially, or like constraints, um, the only thing that can solve both of those is a dictatorship. Um, and that has been mathematically proven. So we talk a little bit about that um, and about voting choice theory in general. Um, one final note before you listen to today's episode with Jake is, I just wanted to read a little bit on why some of my Patreon, my some of my patrons support me on Patreon. And um, one note on that is that it's cool that they are supporting me because by supporting me, they don't need to support me. They're, they're actively choosing to pay me, even though it's not required. So they're actually saying, I have enough. I'm going to pay Reese. And then I'm also doing that. I have enough. And I allow that to flow back to the system through the crypto pledge stuff. So everybody's saying, I have enough. Let's continue to support each other and allow that money to flow back to the system. Um, and I just wanted to read something from one of my patrons, Charlie, who said um, he's interested and he supported because he's been feeling more drawn into the crypto and blockchain sphere, investing a bit and just curious on what's happening and so he says hey reese i value the intense detailed perspectives you're giving a lot on interconnected subjects i specifically value the strong voice you're bringing that focuses on the bigger picture value of blockchain technology especially when so many people are losing sight of this in the dreams of making money uh you're huge clear and humble so thank you so much for that charlie um and if anybody else wants to support me on patreon you should do so <laughs> so with that enjoy today's episode with jake Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take a systems thinking approach to creating a better future. So we have a couple different system series that focus on different system scopes. And today we're going to focus on Series C software systems, where we ask the question, what software systems are built in code? And specifically, we'll be talking about the intersection of venture capital and blockchain and around FAT protocols of blockchain investment thesis. And to chat about that, I'm very happy to introduce Jake Bruckman to the show. Jake is a co-founder of CoinFund, a blockchain research company and private investment vehicle focused on the blockchain space. Jake, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Hi, Riz. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited to chat. And just as a note here... Jake and I will be ready for this interview because we recorded this before, but I just forgot to click the record button. So, Jake, thank you for coming on again. It was a great interview, the last one, but lost to time. Let's see if we can uh, recreate it. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, at a first, before talking about kind of the 
kind of the macro kind of thesis side. Could you talk a little bit about um, CoinFund and give us an intro to CoinFund? Yeah, so very simply, um, CoinFund is one of the few crypto, excuse me, one of the early crypto funds. Um, we've been investing in the space since July of 2015. Uh, and we also work as a as an advisory team uh, to companies of various stages and, and verticals who are exploring blockchain technology uh, and in particular building uh, crypto economic business models uh, based on, on blockchain networks. Cool. Yeah, exactly. So crypto economic business models based off of blockchain. And I like what you said there where you used to be able to say, well, we are one of the few of these funds, but now you have to say, <laughs> well, we're one of the early ones of these funds. Um, okay. So kind of talking more about the, on the theoretical side here, and specifically this FAT protocol thesis, could you kind of give us a high-level explanation on what is the FAT protocol thesis and what's kind of your pushback um, against it? Well, so in general, uh, the idea of FAT protocols is that, um, you know, we can now monetize uh, very low-level uh, kind of technological protocols, protocols that live uh, lower in the in the functionality stack or the network stack of, of of the internet, and you know if you look back to the early '90s, um, you know the the author of the Fat Protocol thesis, Joe Monegro, uh, kind of looks back on TCP/IP and uh, makes a uh, makes a note that TCP/IP is now a ubiquitous protocol. Um, it's used everywhere online. It's used in your phone. It's used um, in all kinds of devices, um, but the way that people have made money off of this protocol is, in fact, not through the protocol itself, but by building applications on top. So it used to be that the protocol layer was thin, um, and then the application layer was fat. And the you know the observation that Joe makes is that when you look at blockchain protocols, you have these decentralized networks uh, that have tokens, and it seems that because the tokens are tradable on exchanges and people you know buy them and sell them for money it seems that this creates a monetization model for the protocol itself now now the thesis i think uh, the vat protocol thesis was really important in kind of educating investors about the correct way of investing uh in you know in blockchain networks and basically it showed that when you invest into the private equity of the company that creates a decentralized network, well, that's not necessarily the best exposure to the value that you create. Um, but I think, you know, my uh, an article that I wrote recently, which is called Fed Protocols Are Not an Investment Thesis, talks about how, um, you know, investors sort of took that a little bit too far and they said, well, now we're only going to invest in some of the lowest levels uh, of the tech uh, technology stack. Um, and we think that that's going to get us better returns long term, and we think that's going to get us better diversification. I happen to think that it's a it's a much more nuanced, um, you know, sort of situation, and and that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, the fat protocol is saying that a lot of value kind of accrues to that protocol, while something like TCP/IP was very thin, so value didn't accrue there. And what you're saying is. Yeah, that was a good way to conceptualize it at the beginning, but there are other kind of value ways to um, where, where value can kind of accrue within that stack. So I guess one that we want to talk about was maybe Augur as an example here. How might Augur kind of reframe our thinking around this FAT protocol thesis? Yeah, so, so I think the first step is to recognize that, you know, the, the concept of a protocol is a very general concept. Uh, it's, you know, really just a set of 
um, standards and communications and uh, sorry communication formats that you know two computers basically use to communicate in a standard way on a network. Yeah. Um, and you can look at uh, very low level protocols as doing that, but you can also in some sense look at uh, the smart contracts that make up decentralized applications is doing that also because anyone can come in and, and use that set of rules to do other things. And so Augur is a great example. On the one hand, Augur is a is an application uh, which implements a you know a prediction market uh, system uh, where someone can come in, create a prediction market. Other people can trade in predictions about the future, and then a third set of people can come in and resolve those markets in a decentralized way um, and get to an answer uh, when, when that time comes. But then from another point of view, um, Augur can be seen also as a protocol because, you know, this is a, a set of smart contracts that live on Ethereum. Any third party can come in and read their data. It can also build, you know, visualizations of that data on, on, uh, on top. Um, or even use those uh, prediction markets in, in other applications. Mm -hmm. So in a way, Augur is a protocol itself. And so the question becomes, is it better to invest in the digital asset of Augur, uh, or is it better to invest in the, uh, the protocol which underpins Augur, which in this case would be Ethereum, uh, as represented by, by Ether? And, um, well, the answer is, first, we have to... We have to understand what we mean by better. Um, and I think like when people kind of uh, proffer the, the FAT protocols thesis, they, they try to say like, oh, we want to invest lower uh, in the stack because those protocols are going to be more diversified and give us better returns. So we can ask ourselves, like, is that true uh, of Augur? And what, what happens is that if you start to analyze like what should be the, the fundamental valuation of the Augur's rep token, um, you end up having, uh, you know, one uh, one one kind of model for that, which is based on, you know, originally it was based on the throughput um, on the on the Augur platform. Then, kind of the rules now have changed in in 2017, and now it's more based on the on the open interest in the platform. But in any case, that's a very different model than the relationship that Augur has with Ethereum. And basically, um, what Ethereum receives is all of the transactions that people, uh, you know, participate in as they're using Augur. And so one is a function of, let's say, turnover or value in the Augur system, and the other is a function of Augur's utilization of Ethereum. And those are very, very different functions. Um, and therefore, it seems like it could be the case that to get the bigger upside of Augur, you really need to hold rep tokens. Yep. Yep, that makes sense. And that you can't just look directly at Augur and be like, oh, Augur's built on Ethereum, therefore buy more ETH. <laughs> uh, right. That can be the case. Oh, well, it's a much more textured thing. you got to look at you know the turnover and value there versus the utilization of it. And maybe, and it's tough to say, and it, it might be um, totally kind of protocol or like application dependent in terms of where when you should invest in the lower level and when you should invest in the higher level. Um, so I guess with that kind of, with that pushback as, as kind of heard here, what when, would then you, when you think about that and the new kinds of, you know, things that you're investing in, and we talked a little bit about kind of these B2C apps, messaging, monetizing attention, you know, what are your heuristics for investing these days that might not be directly related to a FAT protocol thesis? Yeah, well, I think that if you make that observation that that the value, the way that value flows across that stack is actually quite varied, 
then what you what I think people will you know want to do is actually create a diversification dimension across that functionality stack. So that means like uh, you know you want to invest in a few um, you know really compelling protocols that you think might uh, you know might become utilized, but you also want to invest somewhere in the middle, and you also want to invest at the top. And I think I think of the top as as things that are close to consumers, like consumer proximate applications, like um, Kick, like you now, you know, you see a, a bunch of companies these days from traditional consumer tech coming into the space and building products. And these are the companies that have real user bases that are numbered in, you know, tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of users. And I think short to medium term, it's going to be really, really interesting to put, um, you know, those users in front of uh, blockchain technology and to see if they could get uh, a measure of adoption. And if so, I think the, uh, you know, the short to medium term really looks much better uh, for those kinds of things, uh, those kinds of consumer proximate applications um, versus, you know, these, these low level protocols. And one, one very, very interesting app that came out uh, just, just a week ago is called Crypto Kitties. Yeah, I was, was going to ask you about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, it's we're in this week where uh, crypto Twitter is going nuts over crypto kitties, and that's because this is a great example of a consumer proximate application with a wonderful user experience that that mainstream users can understand. And it's just those those kitties are just cute enough that they might um, push those mainstream users over the edge and and get them into MetaMask and get them to be using Ether. And that's really. Um, a huge value proposition to me over over protocols. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I bet, but let's let's dive in for a second there. Let me let me push back on Crypto Kitties. I love Crypto Kitties, by the way. But um, let me, and I think it's funny that you're bringing them up because I was going to ask you about them. Um, do you so Crypto Kitties? They're these. They're essentially these little um, kitties that exist on the internet that are connected to a specific, uh, essentially token, a specific like kitty kind of token, and and you um, can then breed them together to create new kitties. And and I guess my question would be like, yeah, this is a consumer proximate application, but like, what actual value is Crypto Kitties providing? And like, would you know, for you guys at Coin Fund, are you are you looking to invest in these kind of like memes or, or things like that, or wh wh where's the the value there? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think the answer is is twofold. So there's obviously like a product value there. Um, Crypto kitties are basically scarce digital collectible items. These are no different than pogs, cabbage patch kits, beanie babies, you know, signed baseball cards and, and baseballs and things like that. And these are markets that have existed for hundreds of years um, in our societies, and they're actually quite large markets. Um, the only thing that CryptoKitties does is put those markets into sort of a digital domain, which is not something that we are terribly used to. Um, but the scarcity remains uh, the same as any as in any um, of these other markets. Now, on the back end, this is actually a very interesting topic because a CryptoKitty is is implemented as a transferable but non fungible digital asset, right? So, so two. Two crypto kitties don't necessarily cost the same amount, and so this is just an example, unlike a cryptocurrency, of a digital asset that's non-fungible, and we haven't really seen that many of them. And what's going to be really interesting to see is if, um, you know, if, if this is looked at by regulators, um, and if they would say, like, look, here's an example of a of a digital asset that's that's very clearly 
um, just property. It's not a it's not a security. It doesn't necessarily uh, make you money on the back of uh, third party work or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I think CryptoKitties um, are a great candidate for for that kind of guidance. Yeah, that makes sense. And I I, I super agree with that. There's a lot of time people think about either the utility value of the token versus, you know, oh, is the token a security or whatever, but there's actually this third thing, which is this collectible, scarce, mimetic value, um, which we haven't really experienced on the internet yet because digital scarcity wasn't much of a thing or it was only centralized, but now we can kind of create decentralized digital scarcity and non-fungible digital scarcity, um, which which empowers things like CryptoKitties. Um, okay, so kind of, so thinking about CryptoKitties and the, do you think of CryptoKitties I agree that CryptoKitties is similar to kind of Kick and Ken or YouNow and Props in terms of its consumer proximate, you know, um, nature. But I feel like there's a difference in that, like Kick and Ken and YouNow and Props have like these like complex crypto economic systems that underpin them. Are those the kind of things that you're looking more into investing in, or is it other things like CryptoKitties? Well, I think uh, you know we we don't look at those things exclusively. Like I said, I think. Investors should be diversifying, you know, into protocols and and into such applications and, and other types of applications as well. Um, but I think that diversification is really important because it's really hard to it's really hard to predict like what area of the space is going to kind of be adopted first. I happen to think that um, consumer proximate applications are more likely to be adopted first, but it's quite possible that. You know, some large institution adopts a, you know, an exchange protocol at some point, and you know, how can we really know? So, so the answer to me is um, that you have to diversify, and you diversify across the functionality stack. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I guess could you bucket for me um, what what you see as those different diversification dimensions? Yeah, I mean, like for for me, it's it's kind of thesis driven. So I have, you know, I'm a huge fan of decentralized social media. I think um, decentralized social media will provide models for for media that are that are much more equitable and and efficient and unbiased than than what we have in the in the big centralized companies today. Um, you know, another thesis is around decentralized exchange. I think uh, it's now clear that tokens have proliferated and they're kind of here to stay and so you need infrastructure for people to be able to get liquidity in those tokens and to exchange them among uh, one another uh, and then you know another interesting theme is like uh, applications that we really haven't seen before in the form that they are like prediction markets uh, like organosis uh, a few other things um, and and another huge area is that blockchain is great at at disrupting various kinds of of marketplaces, right? So this is anything from Amazon-style uh, buyer-seller markets to Craigslist to um, ride-sharing to food delivery, and there's just a multitude of different categories that are that are focused on the marketplace use case um, using blockchain technology as well. Got it. Yeah. So. Yeah, yours is kind of thesis driven, um, and I guess would you would you also include in those a lot of those were kind of maybe what I would argue a little bit further up the stack. In addition to those, do you uh, there's also just like investing in you know protocols like Ethereum or deeper level protocols like Ethereum, Definity, Tezos, etc. Um, would that be another bucket that you have? Yeah, so so if you want to go a little bit lower the stack, then then things like stablecoins, um, I think are are sort of like lower infrastructure projects. I think that's going to be super important because, you know, projects today tend to conflate 
um, their trans their platform's transaction currency with their platform's kind of digital equity, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where you where you have sort of the generic transaction token w along with its counter argument that you know when it when it has a very high velocity, if it's only being used to reallocate uh, resources in that system and it has that high velocity, its price is likely to go to zero. Yeah. Well, that's because there's a very poor separation between you know the transactional side there and the side that that kind of you know the token that kind of earns um, uh, a little bit of the cut of the platform. And when when uh, systems separate those two, I think um, I think it's going to it's going to be very interesting. And what I see is a bunch of platforms that have you know one transactional stablecoin like Maker's Die, for example. Yeah. You know, and then another uh, almost crypto equity that entitles investors to to some of those returns. Uh, so so that's another example of a of a lower one. And and then great point. You know, underpinning all of these things are smart contract platforms like Ethereum. I think there is a going to be in in 2018 a huge race to to you know to try various um, scalability. Uh, approaches and whether that comes in the form of state channels, whether that comes in the form form of new networks with different consensus algorithms, it might come in the form of Casper, it might come in the form of uh, Plasma, and, and many many different other approaches that people are working on. Um, and you know, I think it's important to be diversified across uh, different networks that provide uh, kind of you know platforms where smart contract tech is is built yeah yeah that makes sense and it's and it's good to diversify across the different kind of scalability approaches uh whether they're state channels or new platforms entirely new consensus algorithms what have you um so i guess kind of maybe transitioning away from this a bit something that's been hot on people's minds recently is the question of decentralized governance um how are you and how's coin fund thinking about decentralized governance of the platforms up and down the stack here yeah, I mean, I think the we as a space have finally recognized after after a few years um, that governance of decentralized open public networks is kind of like one of the core issues and also a very very difficult issue to yeah. to wrap your mind around. You know, we see that starting you know very actively. I think some of the early guys were like you know Joel Dietz and and Arthur Brightman working on Tezos, like pre-DAO, pre right? And those were the, some of the few guys that are thinking about governance. And then really when the, when the DAO hack happened and the subsequent Ethereum fork, that really brought governance into sort of the spotlight. And now you see many, many examples of, of platforms that are working on governance. Um, you know, you have Tezos and Dfinity are platforms that have uh, protocol-level governance systems built in. You have projects like Aragon, uh, you know, which are just totally dedicated to uh, to decentralized governance systems, and then uh, you know m m many other ones. So I I happen to think that you know we're we're definitely going to be able to get to uh, fairly straightforward implementations of these systems, but to make them work really well is going to be a huge challenge. Now, in fact, there's there's something like two hundred years of academic research mm -hmm. on it's called the. The theory of social choice, um, theory of voting, um, it has some very, very interesting mathematical results around um, how do you design governance systems that accurately and, and fairly and equitably take into account all of the preferences of the voters and then reflect them in sort of the, you know, the overall preference of, of the society. And it turns out to be a really hard problem with a lot of trade-offs between, 
you know, fairness and, um, you know, the, the ability of the system to be consistent. So I, I encourage anyone who's working on governance to, uh, to check out some of the resources on that. I, I've tweeted about it and happy to uh, send some references as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll link them in the podcast notes. And it, the funny thing with that is I actually, my freshman year of college, I took a class called Mathematics of Democracy, which was all about uh, voting theory and those kind of things. And I loved it, but I, it is actually applicable to my life these days, which is kind of <laughs> nice. And like you're saying, there are a bunch of kind of interesting mathematical proofs that you can show about the trade-offs that exist within governance that we will start to get closer and closer to those mathematical proofs as we move from kind of uh, wet kind of real life governance towards more kind of smart contracty style governance. So we'll definitely see those implemented over time. Yeah, just I wanted I wanted to just call out like a really quick result there because I think it's just fascinating. Yeah, there's something there's something called Arrow's theorem, yep. which basically says, you know, like how does governance work? Governance is a kind of study of the set of these things called social choice functions, and social choice functions are just the way that you take like all of your voters' preferences and how do you like co compute them. Uh, to get like a single preference for the society. And so the whole theory revolves around the study of this of these like social choice functions. The first thing that mathematicians do when they have a large class of functions is they say, let's put some reasonable restrictions on, on this set so we can reason about the functions kind of within our subset. And it turns out, so Arrow's theorem says that, it, that when, you, um, when you impose two very you know, reasonable sounding assumptions yep. onto your, your set of, uh, of these functions, then your, uh, your system uh, collapses into a dictatorship. Yes. Uh, me meaning, meaning there's going to be like one person whose, whose preferences are going to be imposed on everybody else. And you can, you can show that mathematically, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. I love that theorem. And I think in the, the two reasonable ones are like, Hey, wouldn't you want it to be, it's, it's things where like, if you're talking with someone at a dinner party, you're like, wouldn't you want it to be true that if someone voted this way and they changed their vote, that it could affect the outcome or something like that, you know? And it was like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, it seems reasonable. And then you say two of those things, and then you're like, oh, that's a dictatorship. And it's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> How did we get yeah, there? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so it's a fascinating topic, and I think, like, you know, blockchain folks, um, you know, in this area and in other areas, I think they, they also sometimes need to go back and, and see some of the classical literature and this stuff because it's very useful yes yes yeah we should stand on the shoulders of giants um so i guess to to kind of conclude here we talked about the fat protocol thesis and how um it's often true but not always true and you need to get texture around where value is being accrued we talked a little bit about the b2c apps and consumer facing ones especially crypto kitties buy your crypto kitties now <laughs> while they're hot um <laughs> and then we talked a little bit about governance as well um and social choice theory is there anything else that's on your top of your mind before we kind of wrap up here um well uh, i think it's going to be a really interesting 2018 uh we're about to see um basically uh bitcoin futures on the on the on some of the traditional markets there's been a huge amount of momentum kind of from uh traditional investors researching and, and looking at the space and i think i think we're going to open 2018 with the with the notion that uh, crypto assets are, you know, really a new asset class now, with some, with some serious money uh, from Wall Street and beyond, kind of flowing into it. So it's going to be a really interesting year, uh, and I and I think scalability is going to be uh, one of the core issues here. Um, you know, just going back to CryptoKitties for a second. Yeah. <laughs> uh, th these guys are, 
they were over 20% of the total Ethereum transactions um, just in the last in the last 24 hours or so. Yeah. Um, and what that says to me is that, you know, if they keep growing and, and kind of going viral, um, you know, Ethereum might have uh, so, some issues around uh, scalability. And so th these are the kinds of uh, real applications that bring some of the technological challenges to the top. And that's going to be kind of our job next year is to is to scale the space not only financially but also technologically definitely and i would say not even like capital is not scarce you know it's like we need to scale it yeah technologically super agree yep. um cool well jake thank you so much for your time and for being on the show all right thank you for having me reese uh my pleasure and uh I'll speak soon yeah and uh for those of you who are listening, you can support me on patreon.com slash reeselindmark, that's slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D. Um, and I am happy to say that today's show was recorded, so it will be out there <laughs> for the people. Um, great. Thanks so much, everybody, and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>